Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to a Super Bloom podcast. Hi, it's me, your host, Candace King. I'm very excited to talk with our guests today about really leaning into the laziness of life and rejecting society's idea of a timeline of when you should be accomplishing all your great accomplishments and when you should be, you know, moving out of your parents' house and when you should be getting married and when you should be reaching like peak level of success. I I didn't realize how often I thought about that subject and maybe not often in, in the sense of I've been thinking about it, you know, throughout the couple past decades. I think I've just really been thinking about it a lot now. I don't know if this is like a secondary half to my 30s thing, you know, where right now I'm still sitting at 36, but I'm getting closer to 37 and then which is closer to 40, which is closer to 50. But then there's like, look at, look at Gwyneth Paltrow, look at Jennifer Lopez, you know, 50 looks very different these days, but then you know what? And then I'm going to get past that. And then I'm going to be like, oh no, now I'm in my sixties and my seventies. And then, and then what, what is life going to be? But then there's Martha Stewart just on the cover of Sports Illustrated at 80. And then I'm like, you know what? Maybe it will be okay. Maybe it will be okay. And sitting with today's guest, Laura Belgray, she definitely makes it feel like it's all going to be okay. She has a new book called Tough Titties, all about being a late bloomer in life. And I, you know, as much as I, I am now celebrating being a late bloomer, celebrating a super bloom at an unexpected time in life and that, you know, that you need, you know, experience, you need trials, you need tribulations, you need stormy 
periods in life to be able to kind of burst through the other side and bloom into the best version of yourself, as much as I am preaching that, just know that there are many days and many hours and many weeks where I get still so caught up in this idea of, am I, am I missing something? You know, questioning myself and asking, am I past a prime? Have I already peaked? Like, where do I go now? Is it all just downhill from here? I have absolutely found myself and just like stuck in a rut of those really ridiculous questions. And I recognize that they're ridiculous. And I also recognize that any therapist listening would be like, oh, well, no, you, you can't judge those feelings. You can't judge those questions that you're asking yourself. You have to also like, ignoring them won't make them go away. And so I know that like my work to do is really exploring like why I am even asking myself these things. Why am I projecting that idea of what my life is supposed to look like? I'm the one doing it. No one else is. And if anyone else is, then that's their problem. They should be focusing on their own life. But luckily, there are the Laura Belgrays of the world. Laura is the founder of Talking Shrimp and a co-creator of The Copy Cure with Marie Forleo. She's been featured in Fast Company, Money Magazine, Forbes, Box, and Business Insider. She's also written for Bravo, Fandango, FX, NBC, HBO. Her new book is titled Tough Titties on Living Your Best Life When You're the Effing Worst. And it is available anywhere you get your books. You can also listen to it in audiobook form. If you are a writer or interested in copywriting, I highly, highly, highly recommend checking out TalkingShrimp.com. Again, that's TalkingShrimp.com. Dot com, where you can sign up to be on Laura's email list as well as check out her course that she's created. To keep up with Laura on Instagram, you can go to Laura Belgray. That's Laura, B-E-L-G-R-A-Y, at Laura Belgray on Instagram. And if you're wondering, like, Candice, what do you what do you mean a copywriter? What is that? Like, what kind of style of writing is that? Like, that sounds interesting. Don't worry, we're going to get all, all into that as well. So if you're a writer, I highly recommend just really focusing in on this conversation. I think this is going to be great for you. And if you're not a writer, but you're just interested in hearing about a woman like crushing life and, you know, one tough titty at a time, then this is also an episode for you. So buckle up, buttercups. Here we go. Enjoy my conversation with Laura Belgray. I love that part of, I'm very excited to talk about your book, Tough Titties, you know, because I also, but I think it's funny because when I think of like, tough titties. And and you're in reference to that. I'm assuming you're like when someone's having a bad day and you're like, tough titties, welcome to life, as opposed to like having actual physically rough and tough breasts. Like we're, we're, this is not an anatomical (sighs) reference. This is like a life reference. No, like anatomically, (laughs) it doesn't really sound very nice. It's not something you want (laughs) to, you want to have or touch or play with. No. Although someone's like, why aren't you cashing in on, you know, or may, like doing some sort of campaign during Breast Cancer Awareness Month? I'm like, that would have been smart, except I don't want, it's not a breast cancer book. It's not a story about breast cancer at all. And there is one titular chapter, so to speak, because I'm 12, <laughs> that is that is literally about titties, but, and them being reduced and growing back. But other than that, it's not actually about titties. It is about, it's really about saying tough titties to the rules, to the supposed to's in life. So it's not just like having a tough day, tough titties. It's more, oh, you want me to have kids 
grow up, climb the corporate ladder, do everything on a timeline, succeed, like be on the 25 under 25 list, learn to roast a chicken and be a proper adult, you know, by, by a certain age, tough titties. Like you want me to do things this way, tough titties. You want me to follow the rules, tough titties. So it's more about that. I I do feel as much as I'd like to save it for later, I would like to unpack this idea of having a breast reduction and then them and then them growing back. Is that what you're <laughs> referring to? Because in preparing for my interview with you, I'd heard it referenced, but I have not heard the actual story. And I didn't know, I know obviously it's a part of your book. So if you don't want to go into full detail in case anyone wants to wait to read about it, but I didn't even know that that was a possible thing. Yeah, well, so the the book is in a way a late bloomer story, in many ways a late bloomer story, and one of those ways is that I like just sprouted a big honkin' set at age 22. I'd been relatively flat-chested and like just small and perky until then, and then suddenly they just sprang forth and continue to grow and grow and grow. So by the time I was like 25, 26, everybody, like guys were coming up to me in bars and saying, excuse me, my friends and I have a bet. What cup size are you? You know, are you a double D? And they became sort of a public topic, public property. People would I I just hated it. Like I would go for a run. I was obsessed with running because, you know, modified eating disorder, body dysmorphia, et cetera. I would run along the street in New York City and construction workers would run alongside me, like miming, bouncing boobs with their hands and say things like bounce, baby, bounce. And it was just tough to live with them. So I got a reduction and then they grew back. And then I got another reduction about, I guess, seven years later, and they grew back again. So I have discovered that I'm part starfish, turns out. <laughs> well, and I guess you do have tough titties. They're like, Sorry. I guess I do. We like I guess it I here. Do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, the, you know, I can't tell every, as, as someone who considers herself a little bit of a, like a delayed person, a hot mess who doesn't have her shit together ever, I can't give any lessons on like being the best, fullest version of yourself or growing every day. But I can say, you you know, if you want that, take a lesson from my two tits and, <laughs> and keep on growing and going for it. Resilient. Yes. Yeah. Resilient. So, they don't back, they don't take no for an answer. They do not back down. So <laughs> say, take a tip from them. Well, I, I was reading an article that you wrote and, the, and, and also like, I, I love that you've had a place to now really put all of these stories into one book. And while you've always been a writer, I think that people have a very specific idea of like what a writer is. And it's usually, you know, someone wearing a turtleneck who's like, you know, in 20s and like writing <laughs> poems or like, the, you know, studying who has a degree and like already publishing a million things. And every writer that I've met, and I feel like at this point, I've shockingly met a lot of them who are very successful and published authors. And I feel like it's one or two ways. It's usually like very young women who have just kind of marched the beat of their own drum and decided to just go and either self-publish or was putting their work out there and people just like couldn't get enough of it and became their own like kind of like character within the world of online and people just and, and basically to the point where publishers were flocking towards them or it's these incredible women who have like always really loved writing and that have finally found this like 
breadth and ability to kind of put the stories that they've been slowly accumulated down like onto paper more in their 40s and 50s. And and that has been like such a wonderful thing to see because I feel like, you know, for for my generation, it was kind of felt like you you have a peak, you know, you've peaked and then it's over. And I feel like this whole like our kind of this generation of women are going like, oh, no, 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 no. Like we are about to hit our prime. We've got we've got Martha Stewart covering Sports Illustrated. Like we're good. Like what a great time to be like a lady. Like this is fantastic. But I've had to kind of reframe my way of thinking. And it's been so wonderful to be able to sit down with women that are like, no, 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 this is no, like, there is no timeline. There's no expiration date. There's no, like, you know, societal, like, biological clock where, like, suddenly if your uterus is not up to society standards of what they've deemed, like, (laughs) you know, of, like, use, like, you're just cast off and, like, you know, to pasture. And so I can't even imagine how wonderful it is to now be putting all of your stories into a book. But I also want to touch on like your experience writing and copywriting. And do you mm-hmm. feel like over time, like in your younger age, was that just a way of you flirting with the the book that you would one day write? I guess in a way it was. I like when I came out of college, I knew and going into college, I knew that I wanted to do something with writing, something with words. But I was so afraid of that writer's life, the turtleneck life that he described of like, you know, I just pictured myself sitting in a garret with a wastebasket full of crumpled drafts and and my tears and being lonely or having to move out to L.A. And I don't drive and uh, I just couldn't I, I don't think I could hack it. Uh, move out to L.A. and sit in a coffee shop and work on a screenplay or I, I didn't have ideas for anything that big any way. So I didn't know what I would write. And then miraculously, I discovered copywriting, which is basically writing short, fun things and realized, oh my gosh, there is a place for me. There is something that I can do with my writing talents that doesn't require years of dedication on one project and knowing what you're doing for for that amount of time. 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If anyone's listening going like, well, wait, what do you mean copywriting? Like, what am I seeing? Like, like copywriting as far as like in a in a weekly or a journal or a, a newspaper? Yeah. So basically any words that you use to sell something, promote something, sell an idea, that is copywriting or words that get people to take an action. So my first foray into copywriting was at a magazine. And magazines, actually, in publishing, they call everything copy. Like, we need copy for this article. Like, you haven't handed in your copy yet. So content is copy. It's all copy. But in the, like, more strict definition of copy, the job that I first had there, I was at, I worked at Spy Magazine, and this was the hot downtown New York publication in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. I started in 92. I was a terrible intern, just screwed it all up and didn't come up with any ideas. They wanted us to pitch them and grow into associate editors. And I I just, I blew that. And I was lucky enough to get offered a job on the ad side. And because I had spent all my days schmoozing, like just doing schmooze laps around the office. And so I knew everybody and they said, come on over, we have a place for you. And they assigned me this job that nobody on the editorial side wanted, which was an advertorial. And so for those of you who don't know what an advertorial is, if you're flipping through a magazine, a paper one, and you get to a page that looks like it's part of a magazine, but it says in tiny letters, like, advertisement at the top or promotion. That's an advertorial that feels like part of the magazine, but it's actually an advertisement. So mine was an ad for, it was an advertorial for doers. So it was a full page that would be full of like little things that I would write. One was a quiz called, do you party like your Uncle Marty? And it was to determine whether you're an, uh, like a hip young swinger or an old fart loser. And if it determined that you were an old fart loser, the remedy, of course, was to drink doers. And then I, uh, below that was a short essay on adulthood, which I wrote, which was ironic because I was still living at home with my parents. And How old were you at the time? I was like 23, I think, or 24 mm-hmm. by then. I lived at home till I was 26. I told you I was a late bloomer. I know that's norm. That's kind of become the norm now in this economy. Well, now. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but back then, everyone was like, what are you doing living with two old people on the Upper West Side instead Just of with friends? trend. Yeah. So anyway, I had a full page come out in Spy Magazine that was written by me. It was an advertorial. It wasn't editorial, but I was very proud of it and it was funny and it was a hit. And I discovered like, oh, copywriting is my thing. Not journalism, you know, not article writing necessarily, though I've certainly gotten into that later. 
later on, but I went from magazines to writing promos for TV. And that's a different kind of copywriting. So for anyone who's watched Mad Men, and those of you who haven't, I don't know what you're doing with your lives, get on it. (laughs) But anyone who's watched Mad Men knows that those people were writing copy. The people in ad agencies write copy, like all the ads you see. And then, and what I was doing in TV, writing those spots that you see that tell you, like, tune in for, I, I didn't write these, but you know, friends at 11, Rachel and Ross are on a break, that anything that tells you to tune in for a show or that launches a new show, that old one that would say HBO, you know, it's not TV, it's HBO. That was a promo. So a different kind of copywriting. And then later on, I switched, segued into writing copy for entrepreneurs, for businesses online. All the stuff that you do, Candace, that to promote your, I don't know if you have someone do it for you or if you do it yourself, but all the words that you write to promote an episode of your show, that's copywriting. Mm-hmm. So there's so many different forms of it, but all the stuff, all the words that you use in a business or to promote something or copywriting. Were your parents, I, were they ever pushing you to get out there? Was there this ever this expectation? I mean, I remember, you know, and, and look, like my, my parents were always very, my dad's a, in medicine, he's a doctor, and there's kind of just like one linear path for that, you know? And then once you're in, you're just in, that's what you do. My mom worked as an engineer, an environmental engineer for a very long time. That's kind of like, you know, one, she had like one direction that she was kind of heading towards until she decided to stay home when my little brother was born. Uh, you know, it was very expected for me to, I, I was I was a big go-getter too, but it was very expected, like, well, what am I doing? Well, what's the plan? Well, what's the bit next thing? I mean, I just remember I was, you know, oh, I was 19, I think, when I got re- like really fired from my first job. And it was brutal. And like part of it was because I knew I wasn't going to do it forever. So I just, you know, took some time off. And thought I could come back and then was not invited to come back and was let go. And I just remember my dad being so disappointed in me. He was so disappointed and like, well, what are you going to do now? And I just remember like panicking, like truly like not being like, well, I guess I got to go home and like, it's over. Like all my dreams that I would like was going for are over. And I'm glad I kind of figured out my own path. I, I decided to go into acting because it just seemed much more realistic. You know, it seemed like a very, I'm like, well, this is a foolproof job. Don't know how that worked out. Oh, thrilled, thrilled. I was like, it's pilot season. They're like, you're flying planes now? We're so confused. It was, you know, but I, I, you know, that, and that's just, that's how I think that that's just their mindset. Like, did you have parents that were like, you need to know exactly what you're doing with your life and you have to have a plan and you have to like what's happening next. And it, like, the, I call it like the polite dinner conversation, you know, the polite chatter, like, so where do you live? What do you do? And like having an answer for everything. And if you don't, then there's like this like cloak of failure as being like, like some acceptable member of society and an adult. Like, did you have parents that kind of had that carved out for you? Not at all. So... My dad would, you know, while I was living at home, especially that first year after college, I was going out like it was my job. I mean, I I considered it my job. I would sleep till 
noon because I had to, you know, to get my energy up and then watch soaps for three hours and then go to the gym and like go to Equinox, take a step class, shop for crop tops because you could not have too many crop tops in 1991 when going out was your job. And then I would go out and uh, probably after a little bit of a nap and then rinse, repeat the next day. So my parents were concerned that I wasn't getting anywhere with my job hunt and my dad would come into my room and I'd be like, oh no, here he comes. And he'd sit down and say, can I ask how your job search is going? And I would just tell him I'm networking, which was not a lie. Uh, (laughs) I was just doing it in my own way. I was meeting people. I was making contacts, a lot of contacts, contact with them. But he just wanted to see some sign of industry. They would, Neither of my parents were that much in a rush for me to figure out what I was doing with my life. Although I wanted to bartend and I was looking for bartending jobs and my mom would get ahead of herself and be like, oh, is that what you want to do for your, you know, the rest of your life? I'm like, no, I just want to do it for now, make a lot of money and have a fun time. They were both big pivoters themselves. And they, they had both switched careers in midlife by that time. My dad had been an engineer for Eastern Airlines and American Airlines, Eastern when it existed, and switched to being a psychotherapist. My mom had been had had a doctorate in music, so she had a PhD in music and had worked in the recording industry and then was teaching music and decided she didn't really know what she wanted to do with music anymore and switched to children's book editing. So they both set a precedent for me. And I think maybe had relaxed expectations for me, finding anything that was set in stone. And they set a great example for me in a way because I didn't put the pressure on myself to find something that I had, that I was going to do for the rest of my life. I mean, in a way I did. I wanted to find something that was as exciting to me as my dad's job was to him. Like he loved being a therapist so much that he never wanted to quit and basically never did. Like he had a client till his dying day. But I did, like, I knew that there would be, if I didn't find that initially, I knew there would be opportunity to do it later on. Like that I probably would switch careers because both of them had. And so if by example and by just not putting that much pressure on me, my parents didn't put that much pressure on me. And maybe they should have because I was really quite the slacker for uh, a good couple of years there. I think in one of the articles that you, one of the essays that you wrote, you talk about making your first million at 50, at the age of 50, and how wonderful that was and how, like, and the benefits of that. And I, you know, we're like, especially right now, I think there's so much pressure on these young kids who are, you know, just coming out of high school and seeing like either their peers so in so much debt over going to school or seeing peers who suddenly just like worked hard, but also to a certain extent, like won the lottery, be it built, having a their own independent business that just struck, like being able to advertise themselves really well on social media or like getting into some sort of tech, you know, app bubble boom. I don't even know how to do a 
Google Calendar. So you know what I mean? One of those techie words. But there are, but there's just such a thing where it's either like they're very young having like an obscene amount of money or so young owing so much money. And so it was just so refreshing to be able to read that and just see that like you've had this like wonderful steady, you know, whether you've carved, you've continued to carve your own course of, you know, with your constructing the life that you want and the business that you want to not only work in, but kind of create for yourself, but being then able to celebrate it at a time when you really appreciate it. Have you noticed that this is a common conversation you've had with other women in particular? Because I feel like this is also a conversation with women who are finding like, like fantastic success kind of at a different point in their life and career than they thought that they would. I've actually, it's actually a conversation that I find myself having with women of all ages. So because there's so much comparison out there right now, so many, there, the, our world is now an opportunity, one big opportunity to compare and despair, to see everybody who's ahead of us and yeah, making millions at age 20 from a lip gloss line or shapewear or whatever it is. And so I find people of all ages are feeling behind or feeling like they are late bloomers, like they are doing things later in life. And they find a lot of hope in my story, especially the ones who feel like they've got so much time, but also people who are my age or people who are older than me, because it shows them that, yeah, there isn't a set timeline. And things have changed so much. We have so much opportunity. And so much less gatekeeping in a way. Like we are the, we're the gatekeepers, we're the publishers. We're able to create our own, I think our, our own careers and destinies. And, um, not, not to say that it's easy to just, you know, make a million dollars at age 50. Um, like if I can do it, you can do it. I, I don't think that is true, but I do think that you can start at any time and, you know, put in the work, if you know what you're doing, if you're doing something that gets results, you can like achieve the things that you've wanted to for so long or been talking about for so long, or maybe hadn't even dreamed about at pretty much any age, unless you're talking about being an Olympic athlete. But I, I am really happy to have had to have achieved that milestone that I had my sight set on at a later age. Because first of all, had I locked into something that I was really great at and like locked into my path really early on, I feel like locked in is the key word there. I would have be, I would have become complacent. Maybe I would have burned myself out. I would have felt like I peaked at an early age and it was all downhill from there. Like no one wants to be that person looking back and like the, the uncle at Thanksgiving who's talking about the touchdown he made in high school like the winning touchdown. You don't want to feel like, oh, that that's when I was at my best. I think it's nice to feel like you can keep getting better, that your best is ahead of you. And also you've weathered some things, you've done, you've experienced failure. And it means, you know, each time you do, it means a little less. And so when you achieve things later in life, I think you're able to handle, better equipped to handle the ups and downs and that knowing that like, oh, it might not all be uphill from here. Maybe you're not going to, you know, maybe tomorrow you will have some sort of failure and it's okay because you've weathered that before and you know who you are and you're able, I think, better equipped to handle the success. 
Yeah. The weathering the storms and the failure uh, is definitely like I am actually enjoying that part at this point of my life where I'm going, oh, no, 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 no. This is someone, you know, if it, it could if the day falls to shit and I just go like, oh, no, this is nothing. Like if I got through that one day a couple of years ago, then I, I know I can get through this. Like nothing will be as bad as that. Or if I can figure out that one thing, like I've, I've weathered this, like, you know, complete misunderstanding. I'm like, it, it is nice when you, when you kind of have that perspective. I think it's very beneficial. It's funny. Cause I feel like I'm the uncle, like the uncle who's at Thanksgiving, who's like <laughs> talking about their glory days. Like that is my, like, that is my problem. And that is my cross to bear that I, and that is my conversation with my therapist of just being like, yeah, well, I guess it's all over. My version of that was I, I worked on a show for, for eight years. I continued to work, but then I also was in a point where I did the opposite. So by the time I was 26, I was engaged about to be a stepmom to two children and like sharing time between two states and in like a full-time job of like my dream job. And so I was the complete opposite at the age of 26. I was, I had my first child at 27, 28. And then my second in my, was in 2020. So by that point, four children, you know, in LA, like I, and I, and I took, I decided, you know, there was a point where if I was able to be home, it was important to me to also have that time because when I was working full time, I wasn't really able to be with my child or my children all that much and with my family. And so, but by the time I got back to LA and my job was done and, and I just thought it would be like this easy, like you just climb the ladder, you just go to the next thing. And I took, I took some time off to focus on family and it just did not go the way that I thought it was going to go. It didn't, it didn't feel easy. It didn't, you know, the doors didn't just suddenly part and open and be like, welcome to the, you're in the club now you're in the industry. And I think where people kind of assume that they can do. And so I just remember at that point, like Googling, like, okay, I got like, what's my, what's my expiration date? And I was like, who's, who's like my person that I need to like, basically if, if my life looks like theirs, then I'm going to be fine. And I was like, Ellen Pompeo, obviously. And I was like, when did she get Grey's Anatomy? I was like 35. Okay. She got it at 35. So if I can book my version of Grey's Anatomy by 35, I'm fine. And if I don't, then I've ruined my life. And this was all for nothing. <laughs> And it's all downhill. Yeah, I can tell you I did not book my Grey's Anatomy by 35. I then instead found myself in the middle of a divorce and just realizing that this entire plan of my life that I had arced out just um, was suddenly like, like starting from scratch and being like, wow, I guess I don't know what the rest of my life looks like anymore. And it's been really interesting for me to have to kind of transition the my perspective into thinking that that was like a good thing like that that's a bad thing and instead seeing it as an opportunity as opposed to you know a loss and so that's been a really interesting because I I've had the complete opposite kind of life perspective and I wish I'd had more of your life perspective of like yeah you kind of you're going to get there and like leaning into the parts of you like I love the way you talk about like the relationship you have with the word lazy I think is really beautiful because I do not have that same relationship with the word lazy I I like can you can you share a little bit about it because I know I've heard you talk about it in interviews like your version of lazy is what I 
like stresses me out. Like if I don't have something on the calendar. Oh, I yeah. And I, I am absolutely like the polar opposite of that, because if I see a lot on the calendar, I freak out. And if I see when I see a day that has nothing on it, but like so-and-so's birthday, I'm like, oh, thank God, you know, I'll write them a note on Facebook. I, I love blank space on my calendar. I am, I, I feel like there, I have two kinds of lazy and like there are two kinds, like there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Um, and there's, I feel like there's good and bad lazy and I have both. And so the bad kind, the kind that I would like to get over and have, I would say conquered at points, you know, depending how into my work I am, how obsessed and focused I am, that's resistance. That lazy is really just fear in pajamas. Like I'm I'm not confident I'm going to do a good job on this, so I'm not going to do it. I don't want to touch it. Like, so avoiding doing work, that kind of lazy, I don't love having in me, but the kind that I have no desire to like to overcome and get rid of, I feel like it's an edge for me is the comfort with doing nothing. I love having, I love being relaxed. I love having downtime. I have no need to feel busy all the time. Like I don't measure my worth in busyness the way I think most women are, have been conditioned to. Don't you think, I, I think that's in our culture, that industry being busy is good and makes you a good, worthy person, like worthy of love, worthy of existing. And, and being idle is, is still considered evil. We're a little puritanical about it. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I also picture like, like not but like Thanksgiving's on the mind cause it's coming up, but Thanksgiving when it's like, and not, and this is not in every household. I'm sure that someone's going to be like, well, this isn't what it's like in my household. That's fantastic. Good for you. But the general, vision of like everyone's like enjoyed this big meal and the women are in the are like cleaning all the dishes in the kitchen as if like that's the activity we're so excited to do and all the gentlemen are usually sitting on the couch enjoying their their meal digesting in their body while they watch some sort of football (laughs) exactly and like that's where it like I feel like it's that is ingrained in me like I can't just sit down I have to be doing something I have to be helping I have to be I have to be participating and if I'm not then I'm missing the opportunity or I'm or and it's just busyness and it's and that's the hard thing is like is that that's not always where the best result is going to come from is being busy it's like what is the intention what is your why what is the reason what is the root reason of why you're even doing something to begin with 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Yeah, and I, I am so comfortable with not having anything scheduled with being with like I, I'm the one sitting on the couch. I don't like football, but I'm the one <laughs> squishing myself in on the couch with the with the man and loosening my pants, too, because that's just and I it does make me a terrible dinner guest because it's like. I don't, I don't know what to, I'm not good at cleaning up and I have to be directed. I'm not good at helping. So if someone says, sit, 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 don't. I'm like, oh, okay. Really? You sure? Okay. I'll like raise one butt cheek as if I'm going to get up or fart. And uh, <laughs> they're like, no, 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 don't, 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 don't get up. Oh, okay. Insist. And I don't. If yeah. you insist. Yeah. If you insist. <laughs> Obviously you like are, you, you love what you do. I think that that is also like you love the way that you were even talking about copywriting and then you've gone on to create a course that that, that people can take. You've like you have wonderful newsletters. You you help a lot of people kind of pursue, you know, if they if their passion falls in line with your passion, you you do a wonderful job of lifting up this community of copywriters and just in writers in general and creators. So it is like I feel like that it goes back to like what is the why and like, you know, and where you, it's not busy if you're actually doing something that you love to do. And what I love is all, so many of your photos that accompany, you know, your promotions for your book and also articles that you write or of you on a couch, like uh-huh. how much work you get done from your couch. <laughs> yes. Uh, like some people describe their business as mission driven or purpose driven. And I consider mine couch driven. So that's, it's fantastic. It looks like a great couch. It looks yeah. like a fantastic, comfy, worn in couch that you've spent many, many hours on. But do you like, what is the feedback that you get? I mean, obviously you can say that you're, you're lazy and you're a late bloomer, but the things that you've been able to do and the community you've been able to cultivate also comes from someone who is driven, someone who does have good business sense, and that also knows how to not only work with people, but deliver, deliver the goods. Yeah, well, I'd say that I operate on a binary, which is lazy or obsessed. So as long as I am obsessed, I'm not lazy, I'm driven and enjoy it um, very much. Like I I love the feeling of being so immersed in my work that you know, I look up and the sky has grown dark and I didn't even know, you know, I started working in the morning and I didn't even get up from that couch because I'm so into it. Like it's that same feeling when you're drawing something in kindergarten and the time, the day just passes and you don't want to put away your crayons. 
So I would say that's how I managed to do it. I am accused often of being total bullshitter when I say that I'm lazy because people are like, well, then how do you manage to have this business and um, create this community of copywriters and do all these jobs and promote yourself? I mean, I do a lot of, especially with this book, I've had to do so much promotion and no one would ever agree with me that I'm lazy seeing what I've done to promote my book. It's just, that is what it takes. Uh, but that's how I'm able to do it because when I'm into it, when I'm enthusiastic about it, when I feel like I'm in a groove, I'm not lazy at all. I just have to be obsessed in order to shift away from that. You announced at a birthday party that you were going to write a book. Yeah. And this wasn't recently for anyone no. that's like, oh, wow. She just was like, I'm going to write a book. And then you like wrote one. What year was it when you said, guys, I'm writing a book? That was in 2003. So, yeah, you've done your research. And it probably was not the first time I announced I was writing a book. I think that, like that was one of the times I announced I was writing a book because I've been thinking and talking about it for so long. And Back then, I thought the book, like I had been writing down everything about this toxic relationship I had been in since like from 99, like, yeah, from 1999 to like 2002. And it's a chapter in the book. I was involved with a married, much older salsa instructor for all that time. And I was like, I was so obsessed with him that I was like, well, he's going to be my book. I'm going to write my book about him. And uh, so the first I was going to write a memoir about that. And then I was going to write a novel. And, and then every time I started the book, I was like, and wrote stuff. I was like, I, you know, I've got a lot to say. I've got a lot to write about and to put in it, but I don't know where it ends. I don't know where it goes. And I guess I always kind of, whether I'd switch to like third person and try to make it fiction and change the name or write in, you know, first person and use my name and think it was going to be a memoir. I always had trouble with that. I just didn't know, like, it wasn't that I felt too young to write a memoir. It was just, I am. I'm still stuck in where I am and I don't know where this goes and it doesn't have an arc to it yet. Even though I didn't have the language to say that back then, I didn't know what it took to write a book like this, but it wasn't until I was actually writing it at age, you know, around age 50 that I finally figured out, okay, this is how it arcs. There actually is some shape to this, some transformation in this that makes it a satisfying read. What would you say to anyone listening that that does have that soundtrack in their in their mind right now? Um, I think Annie Lamont calls it uh, K-Fuck Radio and you just can't mm -hmm. turn it down. It's just the, like, but yeah. just saying constantly like, oh, it's it's my time has passed. It's too late. I can't start. Like, what am I going to do? Go back to school. What am I going to do? Like be an intern, start from the ground up. Like, what am I? I can't do that at this point. Like, it's too late. First of all, I would say it's it's not too late. It's, again, unless you're trying to be an Olympic athlete, maybe it, it might be too late. Or Although, I don't know. You could set a new record for oldest person who ever became one. But I would say that for any, like, I, I think that all of us probably love something that was created, brought into the world by somebody who thought it was too late for them and did it anyway. 
And wouldn't it be sad if that didn't exist, if they had stopped themselves because they told themselves or somebody told them that it was too late? Like, we're all being told that in so many different directions. I know we also have voices telling us it's not too late, like you and me right now. We're telling you it's not too late. But there are so many voices, especially in your own head, that will say, like, it's too late to start over. And it is really not. It's so true. There are so many quotes about it. It's like, you know, how old will I be when I, I can't remember who even said it? Like, how old will I be when I become an accomplished pianist or something like that if I start now? And it's like, how old will you be if you don't? You're, you're going to be the same age. You're, you know, five years from now, you're going to be five years older, whether or not you did the thing that you think it's too late to do. So why not try? That was another great benefit of my parents, both switching in, you know, switching careers in midlife. I mean, my mom uh, became an intern in her late 40s. She went into the publishing industry as an as somebody's intern and then became an assistant and was getting coffee for people who were much younger than her. And but she did it. She did it anyway, and she found her life's work. And I think it's so satisfying and important to do the thing that you're dreaming of doing. Like if you're not self-expressed, if you don't tap that talent, that potential that you are pretty sure you have or think you might have it's a i think it's tragic and it really is tragic to me to like potential that doesn't get tapped dreams that people don't try don't attempt to realize and so i i just like i beg you to start if that's what you're thinking if those are the thoughts in your head and please do remember that so much of what's out there that you love might have been created by somebody who thought it was too late for them. So you write a book, hopefully to, especially essays to hopefully share parts of yourself and, and moments that really impacted your life for maybe others to feel a little less alone or find, or be humored by a moment you were humored by, or, you know, see a sense of growth in someone else so that they can kind of have comfort knowing that it's possible for them. But also, I think it's interesting to revisit moments of, you know, your past and your life and your experiences and see what they've taught you now at this point. Was there anything in particular when you were writing it that kind of, you know, taught you something that you weren't expecting or that kind of revealed itself to be something in a different perspective, like it just suddenly had more color to it, or, you know, you, you saw a different version of the story than you had actually lived, you know, when you were presently in that moment. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you're writing a book like this, or at least when I was, I had so many stories to tell that were fun stories that I had dined out on forever and like that were amusing to friends. And then when I was writing them in this book, I discovered partly because of my editor's notes, like a lot of them were kind of left you with a so what feeling like, yeah, it's a funny story, but so what? So I had to go back in there and it was torturous, but go back into these stories and find the meaning to them, find the wisdom that was in there and pull it out and add it in. And Doing that, I found that there was a pattern among a lot of these episodes of my life, which was that it wasn't for naught. 
it wasn't like the relationship I mentioned that did like toxic relationship with the married salsa instructor. It wasn't a waste of my time. It allowed me like, it's what allowed me to find the relationship that I really did want the good one with my husband, you know, the person who would become my husband or all that time that I spent screwing around the first year out of college where my parents were like, what are you doing with your life? I'm networking. Well, I really was found that that, was not only set me up to be available when I got a phone call in, like at 11 in the morning to come in for what tr- led to every dream job I ever had, but also introduced me to people who would later, well, introduce me to my husband. And le- led me the, that first job led me to the job that led to everything else. So a pattern that I found was that nothing was for naught. Like everything... When you take a windy path and people are like, what are you doing with your life? And why are you in this? And is this something you just have to get out of your system? I guess it's another one of your phases. I think that everything, everything you do serves a purpose, even if it's against your best interest. If everybody tells you you're nuts for doing it uh, and is frustrated with you and you're frustrated with yourself, it's still getting you where you want to go. I think that's a lesson that came out of writing everything that I started to see that started to emerge as I was writing all these stories. Well, congratulations on tough titties. And also, like, is this something that you would just say a lot? Like, would you say that a lot in your day to day? Was that one of your own personal mantras to life and other people? Yeah, I found myself like I didn't know what my book was. And I had a working title for it, which was New Dork City. I wasn't really going to call it that. But I was like, oh, they're all they're all like stories of being a dork in New York. And then I realized workshop some some titles, you know, you got to workshop them. Yeah, I had to take it to the writer's room. And uh, and then I realized one day that I do say it all the time. I found myself saying like some I think it was in response to someone saying like, well, you're supposed to do it this way. Like, or so-and-so thinks you should be doing this. And I was like, yeah, tough titties. And I was like, oh, that's my book. That's it. So I say it automatically to pretty much anything I don't want to do or that I'm supposed to do. And so, yeah, I do still say it a lot. What was your last tough titties moment? Uh, <laughs> I think it was, what was it? I think it was somebody who thought they should be invited to my tough titties launch party, as a matter of fact, (laughs) who in no way deserved to be invited. I was like, well, tough titties. I was like, hey. (laughs) Well, congratulations to you on tough titties. I cannot wait for the world to continue reading this book. It's so lovely to meet you, Laura. Before I let you go, I would love to just kind of run through five, kind of a conversation cool down is what I call it. Just five questions. The first thing that pops into your head. So Laura, what is something that you like? Real Housewives of New York, original edition. Respect. What is something (laughs) that you, what is something that you know? I know that being lazy is not bad. What is something that you hate? Truffle oil. (laughs) Truffle fries. Disgusting. It's the devil's condiment. That that's bold. That's gonna that's a divisive statement. We'll see how I know. Yep. I know. I'm gonna lose a lot of your followers. (laughs) (laughs) What is something that you love that is not your family partner? something that you love for you? I 
love, oh, this is so corny, but I really love writing when it's going well. (laughs) I feel like you're the only writer I've ever heard just go like, I love writing. Like everyone loves it, but like hates it. Like, you know what I mean? It's like that love-hate relationship with the blank screen. When it's not going well, I hate it so much and I hate myself and I hate everybody around me. But when it's going well, like, I love this. It's so exciting to love it, to love what you do. So, yeah. And last but not least, what is a quirky little fact about you? I was on the show open to Sesame Street in 1972. (gasps) That is a great quirky fact. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. amazing. Yep. I mean, if you're old enough and we're watching back then... You would have seen me on in my little red snowsuit on the swings in Riverside Park. I love that. Well, thank you so much. All the way from New Dork City. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Laura. <laughs> thank you. A Super Bloom podcast is hosted by me, Candace King, produced by Melissa DeMonts and Diamond Imprint Productions, edited by Diane Kang, post-production sound by Coco Lawrence and advertising partnership with ACAST.